Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast, episode 6. I'm your host again, Dave Christensen. Thank you for downloading, streaming, or however. If this is your first time listening to the Bright Club Southampton podcast, uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about what we're doing with it. I mean, if you've heard before, you're going to hear this again anyway, but um, sorry. So once every three months or so, we have... Uh, a comedy show in which we have some researchers and academics performing stand-up comedy about their work. And then for the podcast, we take clips of those performances and we also have an interview with those performers so that we can find out a bit more about them and a bit more about their work. If you want to see how the shows work, then you're in luck if you're listening to this on the day of release because just in a couple of days... We have our 8th show, so that's uh, Friday the 19th of May. Uh, If it's not yet Friday the 19th of May, then you can still get a ticket to come see the show. It's going to be a good one. I'll tell you more about it after the interview. So, uh, today we have Catherine Crawford uh, being interviewed by Episode 4's John LePage. Catherine's uh, an archaeologist, um, studying for her PhD, with particular interests in underwater archaeology and also in studying religious processions. I won't give any more spoilers about what she's going to talk about. I will just let you listen to it now. Thank you for that warm welcome. Anyway, so I'm Catherine. I'm in the second year of my PhD in archaeology, and my research is looking at the integration of ritual into the urban environment using spatial syntax analysis and procedural modeling to look at processions in Ostia. (laughs) Yeah, I see a lot of very blank faces. That's kind of the normal response when I explain what my research is about. I'm guessing you stopped listening to the part where I said archaeology. Yes, am I right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty normal. Uh, I'm here with Catherine Crawford, who is one of the other performers at the Second Bright Club in Southampton. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hi. And, um, so today we're just uh, discussing your experiences with it and okay. uh, a little bit more about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you come to the Bright Club? Um, it was actually through my department as part of the um, Humanities Festival that was happening. They were trying to get more humanities students involved and also in doing some public outreach. So it was through that and no one else was very, really volunteering and it seemed like an interesting thing to mm. try. Have you done anything like that before in comedy or any kind nope. of performance? Um, performance in dance, but nothing. <laughs> it's a bit different. A little bit, yeah. Um, so but how did, how did you find everything? I mean, how did you... Did, did you find the, the run-up and the, the sort of training quite useful? And Yes, because I came having no idea what to do, really not having watched that much stand-up comedy to begin with. So having some idea of directions to go and a bit of practice was actually very useful, opposed to just showing up on the night and mm. trying to do something and being like, is this what I should be doing or not? Mm. Mm. And it was... And do you think it went off all, all right in the end? You know? Considering it was my first time, I think it did. Yeah. I think you did really well. Um, so you say you actually haven't you haven't watched much comedy. No. So anything at all, any comedy influences or 
even from sitcoms or yeah that it's like I, I know comedy just from watching things but I don't sit down and watch stand-up comedy or and I haven't gone to live performances or anything like that is it something you'd want to do or is it just the opportunity not I wouldn't necessarily seek it out but <laughs> fair enough I mean I think it's if if I happen to be somewhere where that's happening so that gets a few don't they you know we, we had Eddie Izzard yeah. months ago he was pretty yes, good I heard about that he was pretty good um, so do you think there's any huge differences between British and American comedy because obviously you're American yes actually I think there are because a lot of the references that I'll hear people talking about I just have no background mm. in and I think a lot of it is knowing some of the culture and the society that you're in is where a lot of the comedy and things comes from and mm. coming from the US and not being an as immersed or familiar with that, I think you lose a lot. Yeah, it'd be like if if you had an, um, somebody making just loads of Jimmy Hoffa jokes. Mm -hmm. you're just like, Who's Jimmy Hoffa? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when I say I'm an archaeologist, I traditionally get about three standard responses, almost in, from from basically everyone. The first one being almost always is, "Oh, so you're like Indiana Jones?" <laughs> no, not not exactly. Indiana Jones is not a real archaeology archaeologist. Just look at this fantastic parody online called Returning from His Globetrotting Adventures, Indiana Jones looks at his mail and finds out that his request for tenure has been denied. <laughs> yes. So, and on top of that, who would wear a leather hat in 40 degree temperatures on an excavation? That's just crazy. Go to the city of Petra in Jordan where the Last Crusade takes place. They actually have a stand for promoting Indiana Jones selling these leather hats to tourists, which is a fantastic idea. Let the tourists buy this leather hat and go out into the middle of a very hot desert and then just faint, which means the Bedouins are going to have to just carry them back to their nice air-conditioned hotel rooms. It's just not a good idea. So how did you end up choosing archaeology as your career path? Well, that's definitely not how I started out. My undergrad was actually um, a triple major in English, Latin, and Medieval Studies bit different, mm -hmm. but I um, went on an excavation in Rome going into my senior year of university and kind of just fell in love with it. It combined everything I was doing with my various degrees, but I was really interested in human, what do the ancient texts and literature and art and history tell you about um, ancient societies and looking at the material culture and actually finding it. For me, it was very exciting. So I decided to try to do a master's in just classical archaeology and fell in love with it and have been doing it since. Anyways, so I was on this date the other night and I once again get the standard <laughs> response of, I thought everyone wanted to be like Indiana Jones. No, not really. What happened to wanting to be like Laura Croft? She is so much cooler. <laughs> and how did that turn into a PhD at Southampton? Well, it went from being in Vancouver for my first master's and to another master's in underwater archaeology in Israel at University of Haifa and deciding that I had an idea of the research I wanted to continue on and within the field of archaeology it often you often do need a PhD if you want to be in charge of your own excavation affiliated with mm -hmm. the university you have to have a doctorate and so it just seemed like the obvious progression and I like being in academia so just continued. And you took, you've taken to PhD life all right, because it's quite a change in one's position mm -hmm. in the society, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's different because you're not a student, but you're not a full researcher. It's kind mm. of this weird in-between mm. that people outside of academia don't understand and people that aren't doing a PhD or haven't done one don't necessarily relate to. So I also often get asked, have you ever found any dinosaurs? No, no, I have not found dinosaurs. I am not a paleontologist. We might both like digging in dirt and finding things, but it's a completely different field. I actually, I looked up archaeology on Wikipedia as the most uh, accurate source to get my facts correct. Archaeology says is the study of ancient human culture. So there has to be humans involved. Last time I checked, dinosaurs and humans didn't coexist unless you look at Jurassic Park and then we have an issue. <laughs> so going on to archaeology a bit in a bit more detail, um, you, you say you describe it as in the humanities, but mm -hmm. um, from a lot of people's perspective there would be, maybe it's just how it's represented on television, mm -hmm. there's certainly large scientific aspects to it, almost forensics. Oh, definitely. So do, do you find it interesting being at the intersection of those two Yes, things? and with my research I definitely am, because I'm bringing in a lot of um, computer science, urban planning into my research, so that's mm. very much not the basis of archaeology, but one of the things I love about archaeology is think of a field and we probably have some aspect of that that you can play into archaeology because mm. it's not just the study of the past and the people and the culture but how things worked and mm. um, you can't study that without bringing in modern um, techniques and theories into that study. So I suppose you, you end up interacting also in the academic community with people mm -hmm. who are far more on the history side and people who are far more oh, on the science definitely. side. Do you find that there's any huge... Uh, working with these people that there's massive gulfs between them or often there are and that's actually I think one of the main difficulties is that I've done quite a bit of work with uh, maritime archaeology so working with marine scientists and having from my own background having some experience in being able to understand things like sea level change environmental mm. change and understanding those scientific articles so that means that if you're doing joint research with someone from that field you can have a more mutual understanding explain this is the research I'm doing this is how what you're at part of it how that fits in mm. versus having two different fields that don't understand don't have a common language yeah. to understand what's happening yeah. And that's when you get a lot of difficulties within research and even public outreach of telling people this is why this is important, these are the different impacts, when you don't have the scholars working on that mm. able to communicate well. So I, I'm also an underwater archaeologist, which is a lot of fun. And the standard response I get for that is, oh, so is it your dream to find Atlantis? <laughs> History facts, Atlantis does not exist. Thank you so much, Disney, for confusing people between fact and fiction. Really, it, and if something like Atlantis was ever going to happen, it would be the result of a lot of sea level change and plate tectonic movement that happens over a long period of time, not in the space of an hour. Anyways, what should we really be spending our time is looking for Atlantis. It's a much better use of time than looking for Atlantis. So many, um, many of the humanities, it's been said that they are becoming more quantitative or mm -hmm. the expectations of quantitative research are there. And do, do you feel the same thing is happening in archaeology? I think a bit. And there is um, an interesting article I came across a few months ago that was talking about how humanities 
was really important when associated with the STEM sciences. Mm -hmm. So saying it's only validated if it has a scientific application, which people can then understand, which I, I don't like. I think that it is becoming more quantitative. And I think that's an important thing to have um, combined with it, but not saying that it's not valid without that, mm -hmm. because it does have its own value. And that's one of the difficulties with humanities is people just don't see the importance and you see that in lack of funding for one thing. Anyways, so what do I actually do? Uh, I think I spent, I'm actually still trying to figure that out. I spent about 70% of my time trying to avoid my own research. <laughs> <laughs> So what does that mean? It means I spend a lot of time traveling to places and calling it research or going on excavations, which are really fun. But I have to be a bit careful because last time I checked, fun and PhD are not usually used in the same sentence. So I have to be careful and not get caught up on that. And yeah, you made, you made a bit, uh, reference to this in your set that you find it interesting living in Britain. Mm -hmm. so you live, how you lived here for two years now? Yes, yeah. going into my third. And where are you from originally in America? Seattle. Seattle. But okay, I've so. moved around a lot, so. Well, Seattle's quite into its it, its own history, which doesn't mm -hmm. go back a great deal, but it's quite storied, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how do you find moving from a place which has a history going back 150 years to a place which goes back to the Stone Age? Well, actually not that different because I was actually in Israel before I was here. So that was actually yeah. a greater change. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go completely off track. Do you okay. have an opinion about this? Um, I, I read, you can tell me if it's true or not, mm -hmm. that there's a problem with archaeology in Israel, which is whenever they find any bone, it has to be assumed to be um, of a Jewish person to be buried in yes, a Yes, it's a huge problem and something you have to be very, very careful with, especially mm -hmm. when you're excavating sites that are thousands of years before it could possibly be Jewish, but it's a very... Um, careful dynamic you have to play mm. with. Do you find that gets in the way of the actual study? And... Um, it depends what types of sites and the people you're excavating with. The teams I've been on, no, because it's not driven by biblical studies. It's driven by the archaeology and having the biblical text support what you're trying to find mm. versus trying to prove the Bible. I just is... mean more, more in the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. kind of but it, it, but it all, it's all very much intertwined because you're living and working in a country that is so religious that a lot of these beliefs do intersect with the work that you're doing. Fair enough, yeah. Anyway, so I do get to, unfortunately, spend a lot of time at some very exotic locations such as Italy, Jordan, Southampton. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how I ended up here. It's a fantastic place for archaeology where they had all of these Anglo-Saxon finds and ruins and they put a football stadium over them. <laughs> yeah. You also work underwater. Yes. Can you tell us about some of the specific challenges that are faced with ar underwater archaeology? Yes, it's much different than just digging on land that you have very limited time that you're allowed to actually be underwater and you're do using different tools. You have to be very methodical um, t with who you're working with. Um, you have it timed down off into the second of you can be under here until exactly this time and then you mm. have to surface and the next team goes under. So it's much more challenging and then you also deal with sand will cover what you've been working on. So it's not that you expose something and it stays like that. Water and sand have their own ideas of what happens. 
Have you been to the uh, the Mary Rose exhibit yet? Not yet. Oh, I gotta, need to. You've got to do it. It's yes, so good. before um, I leave, I will definitely. Yeah. It's a real fascinating. I mean, uh, coming from the area, we also also mm-hmm. seen seen the way it's been represented change, and it's yes. kind of it's really good now. <laughs> so what do I actually do when I'm on excavation? I spend traditionally weeks to months on end with the same people often in a very rural location, working, sleeping, drinking, doing a lot of other things together. (laughs) Anyways, it it is a lot of fun. For some reason, I enjoy waking up at 4.15 a.m. and then working for eight to nine hours in 35 to 40 degree temperatures. Still trying to figure out why I like that. I actually hated going outside as a child. I never liked playing in the sandbox. And on that end, I don't know why more kids don't grow up to be archaeologists, because you get to spend most of your time basically digging just in a giant sandbox. It's a lot of fun. But for some reason, a lot of people haven't decided to pursue that. So you even made a joke out of your um, your thesis title in how complicated it is. Yes, and it keeps changing a bit. Oh, yeah. Don't, that, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't feel bad about that. Um, <laughs> So one of the things you were saying about was syntactic something or other? Spatial syntax. It comes from urban planning going back to Hiller and Hansen in the 1980s of um, within architectural studies of you have a city and you want to say you want to build a Starbucks. Where is the best place to put that Starbucks to have the most pedestrian traffic and therefore the greatest business? looking at pedestrian flows, but what I'm doing is, in part, applying that to the past and how Mm. can you look at pedestrian traffic in the ancient city and what are those impacts. So it's taking in modern theories and then adapting them, taking into account archaeological material, and then seeing what can we suggest Mm. about the ancient city. And you're focusing on processions. Yes, religious processions. Religious processions. What have you found? Have you found anything that you can tell us? Or um, not at the moment. I can say that I'm working with a specific cult, the cult of Serapis, which was an Egyptian deity. So I'm okay. looking at processions from that temple to, at the moment, to the theater, and looking at what are the different routes, what could have influenced processional routes, because mm. they're very dynamic influenced by crowd dynamics, building activity, they weren't, would not have always gone along the same route. So looking at if you wanted a procession that had the greatest visibility going past shops, where would that route have been versus going past primarily other religious areas. Do you do anything like um, applying these techniques to existing, that is in contemporary, modern, processions and then sort of backtracking or is this um eventually if i can but it's also a matter of time that i'm doing a lot of network analysis Mm. and it's just such so much data to work with Mm. and that when you then study it in terms of a modern city you have to take into account the modern society the politics um the religions that are involved which are much different than in ancient cults but Mm. it's something that i do think is can be um applied in other contexts and what have I gotten out of archaeology? Well, basically, I'm just a very overqualified gardener. I'm really good at using shovels, hoes, pickaxes, sledgehammers. Sledgehammers are a lot of fun, by the way. Uh, except that the one thing I'm qualified for, I'd be horrible at. I, I could basically try to landscape your garden, but the first thing to go would be all the plants. And if you're lucky, I might find you some priceless artifact to make up for maybe destroying your entire garden, 
But anyway, so basically the only thing I qualified to do, I fail at. So I'm going to end up probably living in a cardboard box with all of my other friends in archaeology. <laughs> so what would you say to anyone else who's considering doing Bright Club? I think it's actually a, it's a great experience. It's an interesting way to think about your research and how can you get it off to a very generalized audience but also make them excited enough about what you're doing to be entertained mm. and this kind of stand-up comedy. Mm. I think it's a different way of thinking about what you're doing. Do you think that um, you'd do something like that again if there was like an open mic night or...? I think if I was pushed to do it, I probably would. <laughs> but, okay, so, but do you think it's helped you in other ways with your public speaking or uh... yeah I think actually just from a public speaking perspective it's a great opportunity because you get so used to giving conference papers and that's a much different environment where you're speaking primarily to academics or other graduate students whereas this um, it's just it's so different that mm. it mm. makes you deal with different kind of if you're nervous about public speaking dealing with different types of stress within that but also trying to have fun with it yeah, I mean, it's it, one of the best things about it, I suppose, is that it's not a hostile audience. Exactly. It? It's a very kind of sympathetic audience. And I think that was the hardest part, not knowing how the audience would react. Mm. So, actually, more specifically, I look, when we're on excavations, we find a lot of things that we have no idea what they are. It's always kind of a mystery, that, and that's part of the excitement, is you never know what you're going to come across. But when you do find something, you have to give it a name. And we find a lot of objects, like phallic symbols and things like that. It's very exciting because you find something that's like, oh, it must be ritual. <laughs> yes, or have ritual purposes. Maybe it was used in a blood sacrifice. Yeah, ritual is really just a code word for we have no fucking idea what this is. <laughs> and we have to give it a name if we want to publish. So we call it ritual, it's fantastic. The ironic thing is I actually am studying ritual, more specifically looking at ritual processions from temples and as how they move through the urban environment, which is a very exciting topic. Not a lot of people work on it, possibly because I don't actually know what I'm working on since it's ritual. <laughs> but anyways, one of the really difficult things is that we have no record of really these processions as they move through the urban environment in ancient Rome, and that's what I have to struggle with. I'm still trying to find that iPhone video documentation from ancient Rome, but it hasn't come up yet. I'm still hoping, unless I can invent a time machine, but that's, I, the physicists need to start working on that more. So where's your research field heading in the future, do you think? Uh, I actually, I think it's really interesting. There's so much potential that is, that's arising with combining these different fields, especially within computer science, um, using 3D modeling, urban planning. It gives you a much more in-depth understanding of the past. Mm -hmm. And I don't know any one direction that it's going, but it's a way of taking the da existing data we have about an ancient site and asking questions, um, we don't necessarily know if the answers we get out of it are correct because we, unless we have a time machine and go back, we'll never be able to prove it absolutely. But it's a way of looking at data in different ways and trying to move um, research further beyond traditional approaches of just excavating a site, looking at the material and saying, this must have been what happened or this is how that society worked. And I think it also has um, implications for understanding 
um, things even today. I deal with ancient religion, but you're seeing all of the religious conflict that's happening happening today. Understanding aspects of how it worked in the past that gives you insight into not how to solve issues in today's society, but have almost just a greater understanding by looking at things in different ways. But so, so what do I do? I have no evidence. I, I'm turning to technology. It's this very scary thing for archaeologists. We, we like old things. Even the tools we use are old. Granted, that often has to do with that we don't have any money for new things. But anyways. So I'm using things like spatial syntax analysis to look at pedestrian movement or doing 3D modeling. Things that a computer scientist would be much better at than me. The ironic part is that we really do not see computer scientists in archaeology. It could have something to do with that they'd have to go outside and see daylight, fresh <laughs> deal with maybe like snakes. Yeah, it's, it's a scary world out there. Where do you view your personal future within the subject? We've discussed the, the future of the subject as a whole, but where do you see you yourself um, cutting your path through it? Um, personally, I would like to stay in academia. I really like the research environment. I want to be more involved with excavations in the future and dealing with the publications, which means being affiliated with the university. But at the moment, that might be difficult. I'll be, once I finish, be applying for postdocs and for few years see if I can get a position but unfortunately within archaeology it's very very competitive there are so many people graduating with PhDs every year and not near enough jobs to fill those positions so it'll kind of come down to can I find something in academia or can I find something in another field that can still take advantage and interact with archaeology mm -hmm. but at the moment it's it's very much up in the air and I feel like I don't want to make a firm commitment knowing that that might not be able to happen. So I have a bit more of an open mind about where I might end up. So anyways, that's a bit about what I do. And to end, um, I, I am having casting auditions later this week for um, to have like a slave boy to come with me on a jungle exotic experience to look for some treasure. If anyone's interested, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> So my final question is, what's the most amazing thing you've ever found on a dig that really made you sort of think or feel something? Uh, that's a difficult question because so much of archaeology, yes, you spend, you hear about spending your whole life trying to find that one amazing artifact, but that's not usually how it works. It's something as small as a specific type of room or a type of pottery that for us is very exciting because that provides us insight about the research questions we're asking about one particular site. Um, but I guess one of the more interesting things I found was actually um, a palatal wine cellar when I was working in Israel at Tel Khabri um, from the Mycenaean period. So the year I was there, it was 40 intact storage vessels. For wow. Unfortunately, no surviving wine, but yeah, <laughs> it would have been a good party. But actually being able to do residue analysis, so bringing in the sciences, to then trace where did all of the ingredients for this wine come from, mm -hmm. and seeing all around the Mediterranean, we knew each um, kind of country or city that a lot of the ingredients came from, and that gives you insight into massive trade patterns, things that we hadn't necessarily known or been able to confirm previously, but being part of such a 
find which nothing on that scale had been found before in Israel was really exciting because then you get the excitement of the team that you're working with and you have a and we had articles published in the New York Times and a lot of other newspapers relating what had mm. happened so that part was actually quite exciting and seeing it get out and having um, my parents friends comment oh we saw you in the newspaper <laughs> it's very exciting well yeah. thanks very much for talking to us and um, hope to hear the interview you do with the next person sounds good okay thank you hi again thank you for listening I hope you have enjoyed another episode of the podcast. Uh, also, thanks again to John for hosting us for another interview and, uh, and providing tea. So as I said at the start of the podcast, uh, we've got a show, our eighth Bright Club show, on Friday the 19th of May. Uh, it would be great to see you guys there. Uh, so we have, uh, we've got five great uh, sort of newcomer performers as well as... Uh, two professional comedians for you um, all for only £6.50 so uh, it's value for money there uh, and uh, yeah so the five performers we have um, and their topics their titles to their sets are uh, we've got uh, Bobby uh, who's, uh, his set is called Button Pusher we've got Sadie, she of the astrobiological sword, Nat Life After the Lab, a survival story that's Nat from the previous episode if you want to taste her of the kind of person Nat is uh, Phil, talking about sex, drugs, and weight control. And uh, our final performer on the night will be AD, talking about real, honest penetration. That isn't a phrase that I was expecting to say on a podcast ever. But thank you, AD. Uh, and then, of course, we've also got our uh, compere Masood and headliner Rachel. Uh, it's going to be a great show. Um, and you should buy a ticket now if you haven't already got one or uh, buy one on the door on the night if those titles aren't actually giving away to you at all what subjects those people study uh, well I'll just say that um, they will be talking about research on anything from black holes to the common cold uh, the show takes place at uh, Boulangerie Victor Hugo uh, the uh, French cafe bar that's uh, towards the bottom of the high street in Southampton. Uh, doors open 6.30, show will start at about 7. It'll be over by about 9.30. And, uh, yeah, it's always fun. So uh, come along and say hi if you're a fan of the podcast and I might buy you a drink, unless there's too many of you. And then I'll buy some of you drinks. Um, that's all I have to say at the moment. Uh, we'll be back with episode 7 of the podcast in two weeks time uh, until then have, have fun bye